And what you just heard was the glorious screen majority theme music created by Mr. C.J. Moray. That's Christopher J. Moray. And this is, of course, the Green Majority, Canada's most prolific environmental radio program. Just beasting on the interweb, beasting in real life, beasting IRL, beasting on the Twitter, beasting on the Insta, beasting on the... Please stop. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station or on your podcast app, Harbinger Media Network. My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour. And I didn't know that our theme music was written by somebody with the last name Moray. I'm assuming spelled like the eel. My parents are snowbirds and the place they rent in Florida, there's like an Italian seafood restaurant right by the beach. And it's called That's a Moray. I feel like it's like a missed opportunity to spell it like that's a Moray, like mm. an eel. Maybe they thought of it and they were like, we don't want to sound like we sell eel flesh. We have some climate news and we're going to talk about the liberal budget and Stefan will be conducting an immaculate interview it's actually really good it's true I really like the interview what is the interview it's with Juan Vargas who is is that one name or two first name Juan last name Vargas okay because you pronounced it like one word Juan Vargas with the climate emergency unit right Exactly. Yeah. Prey organizer with the Climate Emergency Unit, who are all partners with the 2% for our future campaign, uh, which is what we talk about mostly. But honestly, we talk about like misconceptions about Alberta. We talk about a bit about the um, wow, the youth climate. I got it there. The youth climate core. uh, And then also about this 2% for the future campaign, which I will say the liberal liberal Budget does not deliver. Doesn't deliver the 2%? What is the 2%? Uh, it's 2% of our GDP should be spent on climate uh, mitigation, is the, the argument. Now, what, what, what qualifies as direct spending on climate mitigation? I mean, I'll tell you what, it's not a tax break. Definitely not a tax break. <laughs> Are we talking about seawalls? Are we talking about seaweed for the cattle? No, mitigation, not adaptation. Adaptation. Mitigation is sucking carbon out of the air. That's mitigation. Well, that'd be one no, mitigation is preventing it from getting there in the first place. But in, yeah. but for instance, a seawall is a great example of adaptation. Paying money to like close down a coal plant and put up a wind farm or something. Or investing in public transit or you know anything. Or, that or retrofitting emissions. all of the buildings in Toronto. Exactly. All of these things would have been great in that all of these things are not in the federal budget. <laughs> They don't like energy efficiency, the liberals. They just like to spend, spend, spend. I mean, they did like five years ago. There was a while where they really liked the idea of retrofits briefly, and they talked about it a lot. And then recently, it sort of vanished. But anyways, we'll talk about that in a second. Let's get to the full news before we get there. Climate news. The IPCC, that's the International Intergovernmental Panel. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. On climate change, Stefan. Thought you'd like to know. Thanks. Uh, They released their first full update on the state of the global climate since 2014. And it has found that we are almost definitely going to overshoot 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. In order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius in the long run, we will have to, they say globally, by 2050, stop using all coal, use 90% less oil, and 85% less gas. 
Not a trajectory we appear to be currently on. No. Inside Climate News quotes atmospheric scientist Kevin Trenberth as arguing that we need a permanent paid group rather than volunteers to provide such comprehensive scientific updates on a yearly or even quarterly basis to help governments as the crisis continues. ICN also quotes ecologist and mountain climate researcher Heidi Stelzer as arguing that we need love rather than reports. All right. Uh, I feel said, like maybe both. Yeah, good, good suggestion. How about reports on love, the uh-huh. state of the global love? Uh, she said, quote, we can't get to 1.5 degrees Celsius or whatever target we set without love for ourselves, without knowing ourselves, and without connecting to and caring for one another, our planet, and the universe. What is the next step that connects these material reports to the quantum and virtual worlds, the ones in our hearts and souls, where we can experience and know that which can't be measured? Good question. Can you find that thread for me? Can you find the thread between the material reports and the virtual worlds? And we're talking the heart. We're talking about the world of the heart. Okay, I'm talking about real, real space in the heart here, not the internet. What, what, I, what I can say is that also is not in the liberal budget. <laughs> right. It's not. And what I can say is in the heart is groove. Groove is in the heart, as we oh, know from that song. <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of people with no groove in their heart. That's honestly maybe the problem. Ben Shapiro would be one of those men. Oh, I feel like there's a, there's a, like, there's a <laughs> lot of liberals, for instance, without right. any groove in their heart. I would question the degree of groove that Christia Freeland has in her heart. Oh, yeah. Right. That's somebody that I question the level of groove. Except for the deep groove of ingrained habit that her mind just lets her wheels fall into all the time. That neoliberal groove. Vanuatu has succeeded in getting the UN International Court of Justice to agree to uh, a guiding opinion. They call it an advisory opinion. I'm calling it a guiding opinion on what legal obligations world governments have in combating the climate crisis. The Prime Minister of Vanuatu said, quote, The very fact that a small Pacific Island nation like Vanuatu was able to successfully spearhead such a transformative outcome speaks to the incredible support from all corners of the globe. i got to say, this news story is a delight. It is. Which it is. It's an A-plus delight. In case you did not know, is the band that sang Groove in Our Heart. Oh, no. Oh, my God. It's the the UN agreeing to do like a a legal framework, right? They don't have any authority. Oh, I mean, again, (laughs) I I wanted to use the joke. I didn't. The story is like good. It's not. No, it's good. It's definitely good. good. Very good. You know, it's not good. The liberal budget. Oh, you got it this time. There we go. Do you guys have anything to say about uh, the IPCC or the Vanuatu? Or? I think I think one of the big things to come out of the IPCC report was um, Antonio Gutierrez, who's this Secretary General of the UN. Yeah. One of the, one of sort of the big like headlines to come out of that. I don't have like beautiful, wonderful in depth analysis, but I would say one of the things that did come out was like a new call previously to now. Um, the kind of like clarion call coming out of like UN spaces and international spaces was like, we need um, net zero by 2050 was kind of like the main, like the top line message. Um, And with the release of this new IPCC report and kind of the ways in which it was like, look, all hope is not lost, but we really have to get our bums in gear here. The new call is um, net zero by 2040, um, which is a whole 10 years earlier. 
and kind of just around the corner um, in the grand scheme of things. So, so that was the new thing is net zero by 2040 as opposed to 2050. Um, if we want to prevent that like big 1.5 overshoot number. So yeah. In, in some ways, I say that's a positive thing because like Antonio Gutierrez is somebody with a lot of influence um, and a lot of legitimacy behind his message. So it sort of, it, it allows people a little more space to push their leadership domestically, I guess. Sweet. <clears throat> so now we'll do the liberal budget. Okay. So the Trudeau liberal budget was released this week, 2023, and it continues their approach of relying mostly on corporate incentives to decarbonize industry. It uh, combines fuel regulations and carbon pricing with huge tax incentives for so-called clean tech, which includes hydrogen made from fossil fuels and carbon capture and storage. These clean tech solutions provide more government support for fossil fuel companies and don't necessarily lead to emissions reductions. <clears throat> a smaller part of the government's climate plan includes uh, directly funding uh, decarbonization of the energy grid and creating investment funds for strategies of low-carbon economic growth. Would want to point listeners towards, if they're looking for some some good information, some good analysis, are... Friends at the CCPA have a have a page where they've just sort of collated all of these reactions um, and all of these various pieces. So if you go to the CCPA's website, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, for a good sort of like directory uh, for more information um, on the budget and analyses, you can head there. National Observer also has some really great pieces as well, one written by Natasha Belowski and John Woodside. And then there's also, uh, I guess, kind of, I guess, more of a column op-ed analysis by Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood, who Stefan interviewed last week for the show. So that's a good place to start if folks are looking for some more in-depth analysis than what we are able to provide on the show in the next 10 to 15 minutes. But um, basically what I'm hearing a lot out of the various communities that I I'm somewhat tapped into is like one of the top line messages I've seen is basically like this budget mostly phases in the good, but it fails to phase out the bad. And the reason that's a big deal is because of, again, this IPCC report, the synthesis report that was released last week that confirms it's, it's, it's not that it gave us a bunch of new info, but it sort of reiterated and confirmed that there is no carbon budget left for any further fossil fuel exploration. There is no, there is no room for anything new to come online. And unfortunately what this budget doesn't do is prevent anything new from coming online. Um, it's, it's something Something like, again, these are numbers that, that people will have heard by now, but it's like, yes, there's technically $80 billion in spending, but what that actually is, is the majority in tax breaks um, and it's and it's tax cuts um, for, um, for uh, clean electricity, which is fantastic, but it's also tax breaks for hydrogen, CCUS, and mineral extraction, which... Um, it can be argued that CCUS actually just props up and prolongs the oil and gas industry's operation. Hydrogen um, included within that hydrogen is blue hydrogen, which is actually natural gas fired hydrogen or natural gas powered hydrogen that is presumably offset in some capacity. And then mineral extraction, which um, yes, things like lithium mining will have to ramp up in coming years in order to allow for an increase in like, I don't know, electric battery or batteries for, for electric vehicles, of course, but that, that needs to be done in responsible ways. So as not to like further inflict harm on both the planet and the communities that, that live around those, those extractive sites. 
So anyway, it's, it's $80 billion, but it's mostly in tax credits, which is like not great because like we were kind of joking about earlier, that the, the dis, it's a distinctly neoliberal solution to this problem. And what it what it is intended to do where these tax breaks are intended to leverage private dollars and leverage private spending. But as we can see from something like back when tax breaks and tax credits were given to oil and gas companies during the pandemic in order to free up dollars to 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 work on like orphan well related issues oftentimes those tax breaks and those those government subsidies for these energy companies it the money doesn't really go where you want it to go and it doesn't really free up that private capital for the spending that we want to see happen and what it also does um this is something that that Hadrian Martins Kirkwood was talking about in his national observer piece it continues to sort of put the responsibility or or put the reins in the hands of private industry as opposed to keeping those reins in the hands of of elected government, basically. And it's not that elected government is the be all and end all, and they always do exactly what we want them to do. For instance, TMX is is a great example of government spending that we don't love. But the more we continue to pass off the reins and, and, and finance and capacity to private industry, the less and less control we have over this energy transformation. Yeah. The problem I have with taking this route of basically just hoping that the, the private industry will invest and try to incentivize investment. A is that, you know, again, what we get out of it may not be even necessarily useful. Like I saw a number as high as that 15 billion of the 80 billion could could go to oil companies for CCUS. 15 billion out of the 80 billion could go to that. And nuclear energy is included in that 80 billion of tax breaks, which even if you're a fan of nuclear is not going to decarbonize the grid in the next 10, 15 years. These are decades-long projects. And so there's a whole bunch of things here in related to like how quickly you get anything. But the part of it for me that gets it to me a little more, and I may sound like a broken record, so I apologize to listeners, is that it sort of feels like the government is focused on, I'm going to say like the easier stuff. You know, like if you can incentivize the private industry to do the things you want, they probably would have done that anyways eventually. And what you're not seeing here is any attempt to do the harder things. You know, like, you're never going to incentivize private industry to build high-speed rail across this country. You're not going to incentivize industry to save the death spiral that will fa- that now faces every single municipal transit across the country. I mean, like, I will say that the Ontario municipalities right now are in deep trouble. Because they were abandoned by the by the province, which already cut their ability to make money. They cannot run a deficit. And now money they were promised previously, at least here in Toronto, by the feds is not coming through either. And so, like, there are going to be cuts across municipalities, across Ontario, through and through because of the changes. And we're not seeing anything being done about it. And that is concerning. Because what you're going to get there is these, these places are going to be more... Are, are going to are going to rely more on development charges and will not be able to plan effectively. And the hard part, the hardest things to decarbonize are things like urban planning and zoning and what these pro- and the kinds of projects that require a government to actually do stuff. And we are just in this moment where no government seems to want to do anything. All we can seem to do is hope and pray, thoughts and prayers 
you know, planning here, basically, that the private industry will invest in stuff. But again, there are so many parts of this, as Dave mentioned earlier, retrofitting buildings. These are the types of things that we have no real plan for, and yet are huge, huge parts of emissions. And yet, we're not seeing it anywhere. And there's no even beginning of a plan. We're not even seeing a beginning of a plan to to decarbonize transportation in any real way outside of just hoping that people buy electric vehicles, which is not going to solve our problems. You know, like we're not seeing any of this kind of action coming anywhere. And that to me is what's most concerning. Like, even if we get the easy stuff done, we're giving ourselves even fewer and fewer years to do the hard stuff. And it's not like society is going to spring up suddenly in three years and be able to build difficult infrastructure projects faster. Like, that's not going to happen. We have to start now. Yeah, no, no, there's there's simply not enough money being dedicated towards infrastructure in that capacity. And, and it's sort of like, I don't know, when I think of of the measures that they're attempting to to put in place with this funding, it's like, listeners will be familiar with the concept of like, policy and policy tends to fall into like your two buckets. You've got your carrots and your sticks. And that means your carrots are the things that incentivize and the sticks are the things that like de-incentivize. And like this thing is is nothing but carrots. And it's like the gentlest little like baby carrots that have been pre-washed and they're spoon feeding them to you. And then they're like rubbing your belly to help you digest them. Like there's, there's no, um, yeah, there's no, there's no oomph behind this. There, um, the, uh, Anyway, yeah. And then and then the other thing that I did just want to highlight is like, so so this $80 billion is the big number that everybody keeps talking about. We've talked about how it's in tax cuts as opposed to like direct spending. Direct spending I've seen is something like closer to $8 billion or maybe even $4 billion. I've seen two different numbers. Either way, pittance, just like little peanuts is is, is an actual direct spending. And then the other thing that, that it should be made clear is that that $80 billion is $80 billion, I believe, over 10 years. It's not like that's going to be $80 billion in the in the next calendar year, which which again flies in the face of of this um, call that you're gonna that listeners are gonna learn more about in the next segment with with Juan uh, this this concept of like two percent of the GDP annually should be spent on climate and that would be something more like fifty billion dollars per per year is what needs to be going towards climate in 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 mitigation spending direct mitigation spending within the like the so called Canadian context. For example, like David Suzuki Foundation alone estimates that the amount of money that should be spent per year on on clean electricity infrastructure is is something to the tune of 15 to 20 billion. So even if you are looking at this in, in a somewhat positive way, and it's like, well, at least it's 80 billion, it's like it's 80 billion over 10 years, when what we should be doing is 50 billion every single year on mitigation direct spending alone. So like, it's not all bad but it isn't nearly what we need it to be in any capacity. And in some, and in some cases it's like, again, you could argue it's like even that, even that spending, when we broke it down, it's like that 80 billion is going towards, like we said, hydrogen, CCUS, mineral extraction, and clean electricity. And even then what they consider to be clean electricity, for example, something that sneaks its way in there is natural gas pr production. As long as that natural gas production has carbon capture technology associated with it. So even there, it's not purely 100% renewable energy that's, that's being funded by that in that little clean electricity bubble. So yeah, exactly. the, the more you dig into it, the, the more of a bummer it is, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, like, I think this goes to, like, you, you'll 
probably if you consume different media sources, you'll hear most environmental NGOs and most organizations come out to be like, we applaud this, but it's too bad this other thing didn't happen, which is sort of just what you have to say because they gave a decent money to it. And a lot of other takes that are not climate focused will say something like, this is a clean energy focused budget that did not do other things, which is also fair because it did not do many other things. One of the things that people were really hoping for was a windfall tax on, on groceries. And instead, we got a subsidy basically of groceries, like indirectly through people. But still, if you only let people have one option of where they buy groceries and you give people a whole bunch of money for groceries, it's still good to give people money. Don't get me wrong. People need some help. But if you aren't then getting that money back from the profits that Galen Weston is breaking off the top, you're just giving Galen Weston more money, uh, just slightly indirectly. Um, and, and so what I will say is that there's a little bit here that we didn't get into and we don't have time to get into too much. It's interesting, which is the attempt to try to protect our carbon price from a future conservative government, um, which is an interesting attempt to do that. We'll see if it works. It's sort of like letting companies sort of opt into a carbon price and get money back in some ways if they don't do it. It's a bit of a scheme that uh, we'll get someone on to explain it more because I think they still haven't figured out exactly how they want to do it yet. Um, but but that's interesting. And, you know, there, and there's, again, there is, this is an attempt to do this, but I think where we get stuck and to sort of lay my cards on the table is that like, this is the kind of budget you can expect from a government that fundamentally doesn't think that governments should do stuff. And that is a way people think, you know, it's, it, it will quote unquote match the IRA in the States, the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act from the Biden administration in some ways, which was similar. It was, you know, it now it was even a little more ambitious, but it still was mostly just the government trying to give money to people uh, or encourage co- organizations to do stuff and did not include any of the sort of direct spending things that some of the more interesting plans did previously include. And in the conversation with Juan, actually, I mentioned the fact that one of my biggest disappointments with the IRA was that it did not include some of the interesting pieces about, say, Youth Climate Corps or something like that. And like ultimately, I think that's what you're going to hear from us. Like, until we start seeing governments decide they want to do stuff and actually try to bring forward a positive vision instead of just sort of sitting back and hoping it gets better, we're never going to be wowed. It doesn't matter if you say $80 billion in tax breaks. It could be $160 billion in tax breaks. Tax breaks are not going to build the world we need because tax breaks will not build infrastructure that we need, straight up. You cannot build a high-speed rail with tax breaks. You just can't do it. And so there is a little bit that that is cards on the table, the frustration I have with a lot of these things, right? is just, it's attempting to do something in a way that ultimately limits your ability to do anything. Did you just say attempting to do something in a way that ultimately limits your ability to do anything? I get it. It works. <laughs> I'm here for it. As a mouthful and a mindful. Speaking of mindfulness... We're going to listen to three hours of Om chanting by the uh, Mormon Tabernacle Yoga Choir. And we'll return after that glorious meditation <clears throat> with Stefan interviewing Juan Vargas from the Climate Emergency Unit. But we're talking about their partnership with the 2% for the future. All right. So enjoy this music and then enjoy that great discussion between Stefan Christian Herman Hostetter. And Juan Vargas, 2% for the future.
Don't even think about that dial. Going out. Okay. Golden machine field. And beyond that? Yeah. Beyond that? Yeah. The wilderness. The yachts. Gandalas. Bandas and the Nagas. You know what those are? You know? Uh, I'll stomp you. Stomp your weakling, warped, bare naked body until you are something else. Me? I'm a gorilla. I have no city brother. I am muscular. I'm a gorilla. What? My tendons are filled with hemoglobin and fatty acids, and I am healthy. This black butter of the living room smoke stuff. Looking like that. Stop looking. Stop. I know. I know. I know. I know. I'm going to the outskirts. Stop, stop looking at me. Stop looking. I'm going out. No, no. I'm going out to the goblin. 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 Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. No. No. Hold on. I'm going. I'm going out. I'm going out. What? What? Fuck. Welcome back to The Green Majority. I am here, as previewed earlier on the show, with Juan Vargas, the prairie organizer for the Climate Emergency Unit and partner with 2% for Our Future, which we'll be discussing today. Thanks so much for being here. No, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat more about this campaign. So by way of introduction, this is more of a personal question, and then we'll get into the, get into the more specific the campaign. How did you personally get involved and interested in climate activism? I, I grew up in Alberta. My family moved to Alberta from, from Quebec when I was nine. And we followed the path to Alberta because my dad was a welder. My dad was working in the oil and gas industry and he was looking for, for those opportunities. And so I grew up in surrounded by, you know, the, the impacts and the influences of, of the oil and gas industry. But I was also growing up in a part of, of the province where there wasn't always a lot to do. So as a teen, just really fell deep into the, the rabbit hole of social justice and environmental justice and found a lot of answers for a lot of questions that I had. And so when I think back at like what really sparked my interest in climate justice and climate organizing, generally it's an influx of, of a lot of things, right? It's seeing the experiences of my dad in the oil and gas industry, both good and bad. It's my experiences as a Colombian immigrant and seeing the impacts of climate change already really deep back home in Colombia. But it was also being invited to, to join climate organizing. It was, it, it was being invited to join these spaces where we were calling for a just transition, where we were calling for an end to expansion of new fossil fuel projects, and where we were calling for better alternatives for the people who live in this province, right? And, you know, th there's been that really big aspect of it, but I've always also deeply brought in the aspect of what this looks like when we don't act right and what we, this looks like when we don't act fast. And, and I've seen what that looks like back home. So, you know, a lot of really big connections there, but that's kind of always what's driven me to do this type of work. Right. Yeah. That so interesting to coming from someone who, you know, grew up in a household that was surrounded by in a oil 
producing household, as you might say, you know, household that was sort of connected to the oil industry so directly, and yet we're sort of able to still see all the impacts. And that's, you know, not a story that gets told that often, actually, in this country, really at all. Not at all. And, and you know what? It's a story that's being told more and more often. And it's a story that I'm hearing from a lot of Albertans that, you know, whether or not they worked in oil and gas, we've had a lot of people in the last seven years, you know, starting with the downturn in 2015, that their whole lives have been told that oil and gas is the only way to do things. And oil and gas is the biggest contributor to their families. But all of a sudden in 2015, when people started getting laid off, when people started realizing that their jobs actually didn't really care that much about them, apart from their ability to contribute their work, started realizing that things had to change, started realizing that maybe something else could be in the cards for them. And so we're hearing a very different story now from a lot of people who are realizing maybe the jobs aren't coming back. Maybe oil and gas doesn't love me back. And, and I'm excited about what we can do with those stories because I think we can build a much better future with them. And I think that Albertans are really changing their minds and are, are really starting to get really behind a, a just transition and, and, and what it can look like to live in a future beyond oil and gas. That's, I mean, that's awesome to hear. I mean, it's interesting because you do see these news stories out in the world about how Alberta, I think, has one of the highest rates of new renewable energy coming onto the grid and a lot of some really interesting, you know, sort of work in terms of those kind of things. And yet that's not still doesn't really even begin to sort of permeate the sort of more general idea of Alberta, right? Like no one would probably, the average Canadian definitely does not know that Alberta is one of the leaders right now in provincial, in provinces building new renewable energy. And yet it is, that's, that is the true reality of the world we live in right now. Absolutely. And, and you know what, like every, every time I get to talk to people about it, we, we see that what people think of Alberta and what people think of Albertans and what Albertans think of Albertans, in fact, is not at all what it's like. Albertans know that a transition is coming, whether they want to or not. And Albertans want a real alternative. They want a real solution to, to those really big problems. And what we're seeing, and this is out of you know some newer polling that's been coming out in the last few months, is that less Albertans are scared of a just transition or just a transition in general. More Albertans want to see more action from their governments. And more Albertans are very, very much willing to make those demands, both of their provincial government and of the federal government, no matter what the separatists want, want you to think. They don't speak for the majority of people in this province. And so let's talk a little bit about the one version of this change we could see, which is this 2% for the future campaign. Can you tell us what the campaign is and what are you aiming to do? Yeah, so this campaign is really launching ahead of the federal budget coming out next week. And what we're really calling for is that if we want to tackle climate change in the way that we ought to, then we have to spend what it takes to win. And spending what it takes to win actually is not that big of amount of money. What we're calling for is that for every dollar taxed, 2% of that, or for every dollar of GDP that we have, 2% of that should be dedicated specifically to fighting climate change. 2% for our future. It's what the International Panel on Climate Change is telling us we have to spend. It's what the IEA is telling us to spend. It's a very small amount of money, right? And sure, if, if they'll give us more, we'll take more. But 2% is, is kind of the, the baseline of, of what we're thinking of when we say, this is how much money we want to see in the federal budget. This is how much money we want to see in provincial budgets dedicated specifically to fighting climate change. Cool. And it, this program just launched. This show will air on the 31st of March. It launched just last week. And so 
the timing of it is also, I think, important. So can you talk us about why you sort of launched right now and, and what the intention is with this particular timing? So the budget is a big part of it, but we're also responding to Joe Biden's visit with Justin Trudeau. And what we see is, is a really big contrast in leadership style and a really big contrast in how these two leaders are, are actually discussing and taking action on climate change. From a leader like Justin Trudeau, what we hear is that we need to act on climate. Climate change is a big issue, but the talk, the talk is there, but the walk isn't, right? Because Canada remains one of the lowest countries in the G7 to invest in climate action, to invest in green solutions. Whereas on the other hand, what we're seeing from leaders like Joe Biden is that we're getting big investments in climate change. And the biggest thing that we point to is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is almost single-handedly the biggest investment into renewable technology, into renewable energy, into transitioning the United States away from fossil fuels and making sure that it is a just transition. So we're really trying to bring attention to this contrast of a leader who says that we're taking action on climate change, but action on climate change has so far basically looked like investments in hydrogen and carbon capture versus a leader like Joe Biden, who is tying the conversation around climate investments with the conversation on, on inflation, with making people's lives better, making people's lives more affordable. And so the timing of the budget and of Joe Biden's visit is really this idea that we're trying to push on and say, now's the time to put your money, quite literally, where your mouth is, to invest big in Canada, to invest big in provinces like Alberta, Newfoundland, Labrador, Saskatchewan, and everywhere else, and make sure that we're actually building the right solutions. And, and to dig a little bit deeper there, there's this great opportunity, say if we spend 2% of our GDP over the next five years to invest big in indigenous-led renewable projects, in building an interprovincial clean electricity grid, you know, that reaches both rural and urban communities. And, and one that, that I'm really excited about, and, and I can talk about it a little bit more, which is big jobs programs like a Youth Climate Corps. I was maybe a week or two ago having a conversation with, with a friend of the show, the folks who might remember, Matthew Klippenstein. And one thing he was talking about was the difference between how most of Canadian climate action so far has been sticks, whereas the Biden administration has really gone out with like this gigantic carrot, right? Like they're just throwing money at everyone trying to, to get this incentivization, whereas Canada has sort of relied on an increasing carbon tax that can be the same infrastructure, get the same outcomes, but it is certainly not the same kind of just like direct investment in change, right? Absolutely. Although I would say that when I think especially about a lot of the big flagship policies in, in Canada, something like a carbon tax, which is necessary and needed, but it is the flagship policy, right, is insufficient. And even though it tries to bring, you know, the the environmental externalities of of pollution into into our pockets and into our wallets, it is still a little bit of an, an incentivized change, right? Because these large corporations, which are paying more, right, aren't getting the deep, deep, deep important incentive that we need to change, right? And so what that ends up looking like is that a lot of these companies just find a way to continue getting investment, right? We were continuing to invest big in hydrogen, continuing to invest big in carbon capture and and to pull another plug here from the this recently released IPCC report, carbon capture is one of the highest risk and one of the most expensive solutions that we see right now. It's not worth the money that we're putting in right now, 
right? We have proven solutions, but that's not what we're getting the largest investments in. And so, you know, to plug the climate emergency unit a little bit, the type of sticks that we want to be seeing is things like windfall taxes, is things like what we saw during the Second World War, which is access profits taxes, right? Those are the kind of real big commitments that we want to see. And those are commitments that will help us get the money that we need to invest back into our communities and make sure that we are accelerating the rate at which we're we're making our, our economic and energetic transition, right? Because Alberta, sorry, very Alberta focused, Canada very much lags behind every other G7 nation on emission reduction, right? And And you wouldn't know that from what our leaders are saying. And so... You know, what what the 2% campaign does that it tells us like, look, it's not that much, but it'll make such a big impact, right? And we have to be able to spend, again, what it takes to win. Yeah, and I love that distinction you've made there between incentivizing and actually just doing. Because like, we need to get to the place where we're just doing stuff, right? Like we can't just keep hoping that incentives will work as instead of just actually getting out there and doing stuff, which is what, you know, a youth climate course you mentioned could do, or some of these other programs that that I imagine this 2% for the future could do, which is like empower the government itself to actually do things that would reduce emissions. You know, like, let's talk about a national bus plan. Let's talk about like some of these things that would actually directly reduce emissions rather than just sort of hoping private companies will do the right thing, which time and time again, as you said, has not worked. Like, it will work in small ways. I'm not going to say there's no place for that. But like, at some point, you can't just keep hoping for people to do the right thing. And you just have to start doing something else. And so to bring us back to this 2% for the future uh, campaign, where would the money go to the campaign? What was what are the ideas that you're sort of pushing with this uh, with this 2%? So from the campaign specifically, we're talking about things like renewable, like large-scale renewable projects, right? Like giving power and, and, and the money, honestly, to indigenous nations to lead on those grounds. The countrywide electricity grid is, is a big solution that we're excited for. But a lot of the kind of partners within the campaign have also pushed for what that could look like specifically within policies. Maybe I'll speak a little bit to, to the Alberta kind of experience because that's what I'm more familiar with. But if we got to a point where Alberta was getting was being largely included in this 2% of GDP commitments to the province, you know, we could start investing big in intercity transportation, right? That's one that I'm particularly excited about, especially, for example, a high-speed rail. And listen, it doesn't even have to be high-speed, just rail, passenger rail between Edmonton and Calgary, a large corridor of the population, the majority of the Alberta population lives in those two cities. And the only way to get around is car, right? We have very little bus transportation between those two cities. Our huge project that I'm excited about, but consistently what we see is that it's getting handed off to private industry, which then decides that it's too expensive, that it doesn't want to do it. Well, let's make the money. Let's make sure that we have the money to do it. And let's just build it ourselves, right? I'm very excited about the opportunity to scale up across the country renewable projects, whether it's solar and wind in Alberta, whether it's offshore wind, whether it's geothermal in places where it could work, right? Again, some of these investments are expensive, but they are minuscule when we're spending 2% of our GDP. It could go on forever, but you know, there, there, are, there are hundreds of possible projects 
when we talk about, you know, what each province or territory needs. And, but maybe I'll end this by, by plugging Youth Climate Corp. And I, I believe my coworker Saba was on a few months ago talking about Youth Climate Corp. But, you know, I would recommend your, your listeners go back and listen to that because she did an incredible job. But an investment in the Youth Climate Corps would tell to young people across the country right now, look, there's thousands of things to be done. There is homes to be retrofitted. There are renewable plants to be accelerated. There is care work to be undertaken to ensure that our most vulnerable are being cared for during extreme weather, during heat waves, during flooding, during, you know, the fire season that, you know, plagues BC for much of the year now, basically, right? There is so much work to be done. And if we stick around and wait for the private industry to figure out what the niche is, where they want to invest, it's going to be too late, right? So what a youth climate corps would do is it would tell people, come get the work done. Let's reward you with good pay. Let's reward you with a pathway to an apprenticeship, with a pathway to an education. Let's make sure you get the benefits to live a good life. Let's make sure if you want to stick around, that you get access to a pension, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are the speed and the scale of the programs that we need, but we can't do that if we don't have a dedicated amount of money. And we certainly can't do that if we're slowing down our efforts every few months, trying to figure out where the funding is going to come from. What 2% would mean for people and for projects all across the country is that you know where the money is going to come from. You know that you don't have to stop to figure out what your funding is. And, and I would add that in addition to this 2% from the federal government, we need provinces to chip in. We need provinces like Alberta to, to almost equal that amount of money that's being put in, right? So that our cities can thrive, so that our urban and rural areas can thrive, so that we can invest directly into the, the indigenous communities that are already taking leadership on things like uh, community-based monitoring, land reclamation, and ecosystem renewal, right? Like these are deep projects that, that are ready to go, but they have been underfunded and they've been undervalued for centuries, basically. Right? For many communities, all you need is the money, but we're not even seeing that. That's what this campaign is about. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one thing that I was, one of the ways I was disappointed with the, with the Investment you know, Inflation Reduction Act uh, of the Biden administration was the loss of the youth climate initiative like it strikes me as one of those ideas that if if you could get off the ground because there is so much work to be done when you talk to people who discuss the problems that we're facing you know we had a a few maybe almost a year ago now we had a campaigner out in the in the east coast talking about the retrofitting required of all the buildings and how much work and how many people would be needed to do that. And so like there are, there is no end of actual work to be done in this project and in this, in, in this project, especially over the next little bit. And so to me, that kind of piece is the kind of things that shows that we're really trying to solve the problem. You know, for me, it's like, Everything we've done so far sort of feels like trimming the edges of things and then hoping something will get better or something will happen to suddenly shift the political landscape. But, you know, things like a youth climate core or a commitment to a some sort of national public transit program, you know, or these other things that would allow for then other things. And like one of the things that I'm stuck with a little bit is 
I think it was France recently considered banning short haul flights. And that's only possible because they built other infrastructure. We can't even begin to imagine what that would look like here because we have come nowhere close to building the infrastructure. And and we've seen what happens when you leave some of these infrastructure pieces to businesses. You know, you see Greyhound pull out of the West and then out of Ontario too. You see these places that we've given monopolies to decide they just don't feel like service, providing the services. And so there's no way to guarantee that service will exist that we can rely on and then we could then create other compounding, you know, ideas unless the government steps in and actually does it and say, and can, and promises to continue funding it so it continues to exist. Correct. And, <laughs> you know, it, it isn't just about funding, you know, the opportunity to build them. It's about ensuring that it stays public and that it stays in public hands. And, you know, no matter who builds it, people are always going to complain about the price tag. But, you know, if, if, if a private industry builds it, you know, spends a bunch of their money, spends a bunch of our money, on building and then makes all the profit off of it. And then they say to leave when, when they're done with it, you know, we've gotten nowhere closer to where we need to be. And, and the rail and intercity transit is only, you know, one of the many examples where that's the case, but it's so happens to be that it's the most salient one because we've just seen it happen. Right. And so it really is about stepping up to what government says that it is going to do because in Alberta, whether you're in Alberta, Newfoundland, Labrador, None of it, like people have solutions, right? We have no shortage of them and people are, are ready to get to work. People are ready to invest in them and we're not being met where we are, right? One of the, you know, I, I feel like government, whether it's in Alberta, whether it's federal is kind of trying to cater in part to the lowest common denominator. And those are the people who are incredibly opposed to a transition who are incredibly opposed or and not always for, for, you know, malicious reasons. Maybe they have, you know, have had horrible experiences of a transition, for example, in Newfoundland and Labrador with the COD stock collapse, right? Or or they've seen the ways in which fossil fuel busts have harmed their families in Alberta, Saskatchewan. But the problem is that if those are the only people with to whom you're trying to cater, those people, and, and, and of course, fossil fuel industry, fossil fuel companies, then you're leaving out perhaps the large majority of people, which are the people who are literally waiting for to be a part of something, who are waiting to either get to work directly on climate solutions or who are waiting for their communities to transform in the way that they can really imagine, right? And so what happens there is that we aren't getting that time back, right? And we certainly can't buy that time back. But if we spend the money now, what it looks like is we can account for the year's loss and make sure that we accelerate to where we need to be. And so instead of losing all these people who are waiting for their governments to do something that'll include them in a transition, that'll include them in building a, a no carbon or a net carbon country and province and city and town or whatever it might be, then we lose those people. But on the other hand, if we do give people that offer, if we can show to those people that life can be better, we're rewarding them with with what we all deserve and the people who are skeptical now might still be skeptical now, but they'll be, they'll be much less skeptical and more likely a lot more supportive five years from now, after we've spent this much amount of time investing deeply in our communities and building better communities. And so I, you know, if there's any government officials or anyone from government listening to this, it's, you know, let's not cater to the people who are the, the most scared of transition. 
we can do things to, to make the transition seem more realistic and less scary. But we also need to act now and we need to give people who are ready to act now, who are ready to be part of that project, something for them to be a part of because otherwise we lose them and otherwise we're not building any happier communities. And so before we sort of get into the place of how folks can get involved, I have one nerdy question for you. So this is the this is a chance to get as as deep as we can, if you or how, as you like, which is, what is the theory of change for this this two percent for the future campaign or for our future campaign? Now, how are you hoping that sort of it seeds in and 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 really builds power? Tell you a little bit about maybe my theory of change and how I think about the theory of change from the perspective of the climate emergency unit. I don't want to speak too much specifically on 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 the other organizations that are involved within the two percent, but for me. I think we need to make it clear that if we don't spend what it takes, then the money doesn't matter, right? People are scared of, of, of what the economic impacts of spending all our money away on climate change. But if we don't, quote unquote, beat climate change, then the money will be the least of our problems, right? Either because of the impacts of runaway climate change, because of the social impacts of crumbling infrastructure that cannot respond or, or be prepared for the impacts of climate change, such as biodiversity collapse, biodiversity loss, and, 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 and um, species loss. It is deeper and faster impacts in the global south and countries that have not contributed to this problem nearly in, in the same size that, that Canada, that the United States, that Europe have. So what is my theory of change? The theory of change is that if we can convince people and if we can bring people along on this idea that we have to spend what it takes to win, then they will demand that of their officials. They will demand that of their leaders and be able to open their eyes and their ideas and their minds up to the idea that to fight climate change, we need to think big. To fight climate change, we need to think big, but it needs to be big investments in our communities, right? So if we spend what, if we spend what it takes to win, then we'll be a lot more on board when it comes to building the new institutions, building a whole slew of new crown corporations to, to tackle the issue, right? If if the issue is that more people want heat pumps in in homes that are literally just trying to transition off of wood stoves or, or oil boilers, then, then spending what it takes to win makes it a lot more convincing to build just entire manufacturing plants, just manufacturing heat pumps, just being used to, to transition those homes. And so the way in which we get change with a campaign like this is we get more and more money. We get people more excited about thinking big about the solutions that we can have. And we kind of fight this, to put it clearly, this kind of neoliberal limitation of the imagination that we have around what climate solutions can look like, around what the solutions to the problems in our lives can look like, right? The, the lasting legacy of this kind of neoliberal project is that people don't believe that we can act big with the problems that we face. And so when people start to genuinely believe the framing behind, we spend what it takes to win and what it's and, and what it takes to win is just 2% of our, our GDP, then we can get people a lot more on board with these large policies, with the large solutions that can accelerate the work that we're trying to get on climate change uh, and that can accelerate a, a neater and more just transition away from fossil fuels. So it's not like a fully, you know, it doesn't follow the full formula of like, this theory of change that that a lot of you know social movements use because you know I'd have to sit down and, and kind of put it into that formula. But for me, it really is 
if we convince people, if we can, if we can bring people along this idea of we need to think big and we have the money to think big, then we can act big and win big. It's both bears out in some of the conversations I had previously. One of the ones that goes back to a couple of years ago was when Halifax was considering actually taking climate change seriously. They talked about the unlockingness they found about saying, no, we are going to raise revenue specifically to deal with this and how that totally changed the experience of the city staff from seeing it as a threat in another addition to their workloads to an opportunity to actually do something they really could imagine to do. And and then the other side of this coin you just mentioned there of like actually proposing a solution at the scale of the problem to me is the number one thing. Like, People understand the scale of problems. And so when we come to them and tell them that we can fix this problem with small little changes, they tune out and rightfully so, because we can't. That's a lie. It might be a forgetting step, but it's not galvanizing because no one can see the path forward from that small idea to the actual change we're asking for. And so it totally leaves us feeling disempowered because they are like, well, if you want to do that, sure, whatever. But a, I don't see myself in it, and B, it's not going to work. Exactly. And, you know, for so long, people have responded with this kind of idea of like, no, that's too much money. We clearly can't be spending that. We spent almost equivalent amounts in the first few months of the pandemic alone. But I would say equally as important in Alberta, you know, we're flagging giving $20 billion away to, to fossil fuel companies to clean up, clean up after their own mess, right? We've had the $13 billion surpluses, we are spending $31 billion on Trans Mountain Pipeline, right? Like people really put that in perspective now and they're starting to understand we do have the money, right? Like the, the money is is right there. We're just not putting it where, where it needs to go. And I think we're, you know, don't have any numbers for you, but I generally do think that people are starting to shift the way that they're thinking about this and saying like, we're spending on the complete wrong things. It is on mitigation and adaptation that we need to start thinking about now, not on expanding fossil fuel projects, not on expanding our emissions. And I think that what this campaign does is that it puts it, that money, it's a very clear perspective. And it tells people it's a lot of money and it's not that much. And imagine how big of a difference that can make for your life. And, and, and I'm excited about how, how far this will go. Yeah, for sure. So if folks have heard this interview and want to get involved, how can they? I would really encourage people to check out the 2% for our future uh, webpage. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of action there. Kind of plugging, of course, again, the Climate Emergency Unit. We, we take this idea front and center within the work that we do around spending what it takes to win. In fact, it is our kind of number one marker of what a climate emergency looks like. So we're really excited that that more people are kind of joining this demand and making it, you know, showing that that it's a big and small demand at the same time. So for, you know, for Climate Emergency Unit, we currently have this really big campaign under underway for the Youth Climate Corps uh, that we're really excited about. I would say if you are eager to get involved, uh, if you are in Alberta, I would say message me, Juan, at climateemergencyunit.ca. If you are in Ontario, I would tell you to message uh, Saba at climateemergencyunit.ca. That's just some of the work that the Climate Emergency unit is doing, uh, but there's also tons of opportunities to get involved uh, on the 2% for our future website. Uh, it goes a little bit more to who some of the partners are, partners like David Suzuki Foundation, uh, who are also doing in their own ways, 
really, really vital work. I'm very excited about the work that David Suzuki Foundation is doing around electrification, which you know fits right in here with this idea of two percent. And so, tons of ways to get involved. Those are just some of few, some some of the few, some of the many um, uh, ways to get involved. Uh, but there's definitely no shortage of opportunities because you know we're trying to amplify what's politically feasible and possible within this country. And I think that we're getting closer and closer to that place. So it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So I will throw back to you in two seconds to speak to our audience more generally about anything you sort of want to highlight or or, or land. Uh, but before I do, uh, thank you so much, Juan Vargas, the Prairie Organizer for the Climate Emergency Unit and a partner with 2% for Our Future. Check them out, both the CEU and 2% for Our Future. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, any last thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about, you know, giving people the opportunity to get involved in the 2% for Our Future campaign, to get involved in the Youth Climate Corps campaign. Uh, and in, like I said, in Alberta, we're, we're, we're calling for an Alberta Climate Corps ahead of the, the provincial elections uh, to really see how far we can take it uh, at the provincial level. Um, there's never a shortage of opportunities to get involved. But what I really want people to, to start thinking about is there are opportunities almost every day now to kind of have these conversations, right? Whether we're talking about um, Joe Biden's visit, whether we're talking about how much money we're spending on projects like Trans Mountain, every opportunity to talk about how much we need to be spending on climate, it is a huge one, right? And 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 like I've said throughout the show, it's a lot of money and it's not that much money. It's 2% for our future. We have this opportunity to really start changing the way that people think about how we're spending on climate. And it's a conversation that we can have with the people in our lives. Uh, a key way in which that's happened within the United States is tying that directly to inflation, right? Tying that directly to saying investing in climate is investing in inflation reduction. And so when you're having conversations around the expensive price of groceries, the expensive price of gas, uh, these are conversations to say, you know, wouldn't it be better if we were investing the money that we're investing in oil and gas or in, in, in non-decarbonizing solutions back in, into the communities in which we live? So I could ramble forever, but um, taking the opportunity to, to tell people who are listening that there, there are tons of opportunities around you to have these conversations. And, and these opportunities are best when we're taking collective action and action together. And so I really encourage you to, like I said, Check out the partners uh, on, on the campaign. Check out the Climate Emergency Unit uh, and see how you can get involved.